you know, I still vividly remember getting off the airplane at a military base in southern Russia and seeing palm trees and asking our host, hey, how far away is this resort from the airport here? And his answer was only 30 miles away. I thought to myself, holy cow, this is going to be one big snowmaking system. At the time, there was only like goat roads, horse roads around the mountain, you know, no slopes, no base area, no good roads. And the weather there was super marginal. So we had to design a really tight snow gun density, particularly in the lower mountain, and did a fully automated system. The Olympics went great. And now this resort is super successful. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, addressing a topic that a lot of you have been asking for for a very long time today, snowmaking. First, before we get to that, a reminder, please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter. There's a lot of bad information out there, but I'm doing actual sourced journalism in the Storm Skiing newsletter, where I'm churning out breaking news, reporting, analysis, and reflections on the world of lift serve skiing all year long. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it straight to your inbox instead by subscribing to the email newsletter at stormskiing.com instead. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. I know a lot of you listening are leading large teams of lift maintenance pros, and I know you want them to be the best. And that is why I am so pumped up about my new partner. This episode of the Storm Skiing Podcast is sponsored by CORE, Oregon State University's Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy, the industry's premier workforce development partner. Is your ski resort ready for a second winter of revenge, tourism, and record guests? Are you looking to upgrade ski lift mechanic skills at your resort, but challenged by the cost and time to train your team? Oregon State's core online ski lift maintenance training gives new and experienced lift mechanics the skills to become the technicians your resort needs. This self-paced, interactive, hybrid online training covers lift systems and operations, safety standards, preventative maintenance, and full NSAA Level 1 requirements. It is the most affordable lift maintenance training in the industry, and it includes industry expert sessions, on-site assessments, and all course materials. Sign up your lift maintenance team at beav.es.storm. So they know that we sent you. That's B-E-A-V.es backslash storm. Alright, now for my OG sponsor, Mountain Gazette. I have been hammering you with this for more than two years now, but no matter what I say, it is not going to whack you on the head until Mountain Gazette drops on your doorstep. Issue 198 worked its way to me recently, and wow. First, the cover. Seth Morrison, Crushing Pile captured by photographer Scott Markowitz. That shot tags an enormous spread on one of the greatest skiers of all time. And then, did you know that there are 22 ski areas in Greece? Greece. There are some amazing pics to prove it too. Then, writer and snowboarder Dave Zook gives us a deep meditation on what it means to compete in and ultimately retire from the competitive free ride circuit and the photo profile of Trevor Kinnison, who is living an inspirational life in a sit-ski after a spinal cord injury, is unforgettable. This thing takes some left turns, too. 
We explore nudist lifestyle, Saudi Arabia, and the tragic end to the life of cyclist Mariah Wilson. But you really have to see it to understand how good this thing is. My man Mike Rogie, who had the vision to bring Mountain Gazette back from the dead two years ago, laid this out beautifully in the latest issue when he said, quote, A firm belief developed for me recently. Folks need to see Mountain Gazette in real life. Then, and only then, do they get it. Look, that's real. This thing is incredible. It is the best outdoor print mag going, and you can get in on it by subscribing at mountaingazette.com. And while you're there, check out Mountain Gazette's new lineup of mugs, hats, t-shirts, and hoodies. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 111, Joe Vanderkellen, president of SMI Snowmakers. Long before I ever skied or ever even thought about it, I knew about SMI Snowmakers. That's because if you're driving the US-10 Expressway in Central Michigan, you can't miss it. A low-slung building rocking endless rows of snow guns, and if it's wintertime, a giant pile of snow ornamenting it all. This little facility, located, ironically, in one of the flattest places on the planet, is the top US-based snowmaking manufacturer and one of the largest in the world. And it's a place that personally resonates with me a lot. Driving past this place as a kid, it was the first piece of the ski industry that I ever encountered. And tangible proof that someone from Midland County, Michigan, could contribute meaningfully to that industry. And when, as a teenager, I drove past that factory every single day, it was a constant reminder that skiing and the world that surrounded it never truly stopped. And it was a big motivator to eventually become part of it. In those days, I never had the nerve to stop in and ask to look around. But this past summer, I finally reached out. And the folks at SMI could not have been more welcoming. I have been waiting a long, long time for this one. Let's do it. My guest today has been president of SMI Snowmakers since 1991. Founded in 1974 by his parents, Jim and Betty Vanderkellen, the Midland, Michigan-based company counts more than 1,000 ski resort customers on six continents and has installed systems for eight Winter Olympics. It's Smart Snow, V2, Axis, Grizzly, Freedom X, Puma, Polecat, Wizard, and Latitude 90 products can produce high-quality snow in nearly any conditions. Joe Vanderkellen is my guest. Joe, welcome to the storm. I think I've been waiting about 30 years for this conversation. How are you doing today? Hey, Stuart. I'm doing great, and it's a pleasure to be with you, and uh, you're doing our industry a a great service by these podcasts and uh, deep diving some of these interesting subjects. Well, thanks so much for saying that, Joe, And, and let me elaborate for the listeners on what I mean by I've been waiting 30 years. So I grew up in Midland County, Michigan, in a little town called Sanford that's about 10 miles away from your factory. And for anyone who's ever driven on the US-10 freeway, especially headed westbound, you will see on your right the SMI Snowmaker Factory with this amazing morale of snowmakers. And you'll see all the snow guns sitting outside in a big uh, in a big lineup. And if you're lucky enough to drive by in the winter, you'll also see a big pile of snow. So this place has been lodged in my conscience since before I was a skier because I didn't start skiing until I was a teenager. So it's really interesting to me that two guys from one of the flattest places that I've ever seen, Midland County, Michigan, 
are here talking about snow. How cool is that for you, Joe? Oh, it's great. You know, I, uh, I love this business. We love snow. Uh, it's taken us to some amazing places and journeys. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cool story for sure. So your parents started this business, as I mentioned, back in 1974 in their garage. I'm assuming that was in Midland, but correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, What were they doing prior to starting SMI and how and why did they start making their own snow guns? Well, my father was a patent attorney who worked for the Dow Chemical Company, which is a Fortune 100 company located here in Michigan that primarily produces chemicals and plastics. And my mother was a tax accountant in town. And there was a chief scientist at Dow, a guy named Alden Hansen, who also happened to be our next door neighbor. My father worked with him often on patents, and uh, he had invented a new material that looked like raw hamburger. It was more like silly putty in density and feel. I still remember seeing these prototypes on our family room table. It was an interesting material that if you pushed it slowly, it would move a bit, but if you hit it with your fist hard, it would not move. And the Hanson family was skiers, and they thought this would make a great ski boot material. So this flow fit was licensed to Lang for a year, and it did not go very well. So the product was changed, and a new company called Hanson was formed by Alden's two sons, Chris and Denny. They created what was called Hanson Ski Boots. They were bright colors, and my father was involved in this company from its start as a patent attorney in the legal counsel. And it was really successful in the 70s. They had bright colors, rear entry. And my father took an interest in this business and got his taste for the ski industry. Now, meanwhile, in the 60s, this Alden Hansen also worked on a snowmaking patent on the side that was actually issued a pioneer patent for fan snowmaking. Not much happened with this patent for a while, but in the late 60s, a secondary patent was developed using fans and a new company was started in New York called Snow Machines International by Bill Gilbert from Catamount. The Hansen patent was licensed and my father was in charge of monitoring the royalties and learned a lot about snowmaking. But in 1974, Gilbert decided running a ski area was more lucrative than snowmaking. So he sold the business to our family and the name was changed to Snow Machines, Inc. This business started with both my parents and one employee named Augie Hoff, who moved from New York. So my parents were both avid skiers. They thought, why not give this business a try? So they start tinkering around in their garage and, you know, they gave it a try. When did they know they were onto something? And kind of take us into when you did build this facility that, that I referred to earlier that sits off US-10 there. Well, it was actually a, a product that had been in use for a few years. Uh, it just needed some refinement. So they kind of took the original concept and tinkered with it and added a little bit of energy to it, a little bigger diameter fan, uh, improved the packaging of it. And that then really became a successful product launch for it. So when your parents inherited the business or purchased the business from Catamount, which is a ski area that's still in business, interesting ski area that straddles the New York, Massachusetts border out here in my neighborhood, uh, did they inherit the client list as well? Or did they have to kind of start from zero and build that back up? Yeah, no, there there was a, a number of resorts that were using the product already, but it had a long ways to go and needed some needed some serious upgrading. But um, it wasn't like starting from square zero. So how long did they work out of the garage before they started to build that factory? Yeah, I mean, it it, it took about a year to, to build a few, few of the products. And then we actually started in the back of a carpet company 
uh, renting space. Um, I still remember being there when I was a teenager working and uh, slowly rented more of the space. And then I think within three or four years, I ended up buying the entire building and property. You mentioned your parents were skiers. So you said you were a teenager when they were started to do this. So how cool is it for you to suddenly be part of the ski business? Oh, it was great. You know, I started skiing at three on rope toes in mid-Michigan at places like Mott and Snow Snake and Apple Mountain, then kind of upgraded to the Boynes, you know, Nubs Knobs, Crystal, Shanty Creek, and Oxego while I was growing up. And I recall some great family trips and great school bus trips, you know, being in nature, sliding down snow. What a blast. So I got hooked at a young age. And then I started coaching and working at SMI in the summers and sometimes during the school year. And I was always really interested in how machines and complex engineered products work, like, you know, bridges, skyscrapers, bulldozers. I enjoyed math and science. So engineering school was a was really a good next step for me. And then I started as an intern working at IBM while I was getting an MBA. And our family business uh, concept was always you had to go work for a different company for a few years and get a promotion before you could come back and join the family business. So I joined SMI in sales and engineering, and the first few projects were super interesting, working on construction projects at, at Blackcomb, which is Whistler now, and very rugged and tough terrain, you know, nothing like the flat and simple Midwest. It was really fun traveling the world with my father and learning about cultures and all aspects of the industry, like lifts and rentals and grooming, and really, really interesting and, and fun to be a part of the business. So was there a moment, was there, and maybe it was that moment working on that black home project, but was there a moment or, or a particular challenge that made you say, this is what I want to do with my life? Cause there's, you know, there's nothing inevitable about you eventually taking over the family business. So, so what made you decide, okay, this is what I want to devote my life to. I want to be part of SMI. I want to grow this thing. I want to continue to see their dream evolve. Yeah. I mean, you know, being a skier, being an athlete, uh, being outside, you know, I like to fish. We like to hike. Um, you know, I'd, I'd had a chance to travel to some of the big resorts out West and it was like, wow, if you can work into a business that you have a passion for and that you think's interesting and you know, the, the snowmaking systems are quite technical and complex from an engineering standpoint, and it also involved business skills. So it really seemed to be a great fit. And, um, you know, I still still love what I do to this day. And, it, and it's been a great career. So just talk a little bit about what that job is, because most most of the folks who I interview on this podcast run ski areas and they are, for better or worse, stapled to that ski area. It is really hard for them to get out and and do anything else because it's just so intensive for that period. And, and some of them, if they work, for example, in the Midwest, they tend to close up shop around third week in March and they can travel out West or whatever. But a lot of these resort managers, especially the ones that have these really long, like October to June seasons, you know, they really never get to go anywhere else. And they know their mountain better than, you know, the deer that live on it. But you have a whole different kind of thing where your customer base is probably one of the largest customer bases of any company in skiing where you just have this global footprint. So just talk about your job a little bit and that sort of adventure element of it and, and the sorts of places that it takes you to and, and kind of what your year looks like. I know how much time do you spend actually 
on the road going and, and seeing all these places that you're working with? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, we've built a tremendous team here um, in our facility in Michigan and Pennsylvania, and we do indeed have a global footprint, and we can talk about that later. But, um, you know, personally, I spend, you know, probably more than 100 days a year traveling and visiting resorts around the world. And uh, it's important as a leader, I think, to go out and be with customers, make snow, understand the equipment, understand the needs that they have. And also, since we have a global footprint, you know, we have different cultures, different languages, different currencies. So to go out there and see kind of what's going on, we have different competitors around the world. You know, I think my leadership style is to stay in touch with that and, you know, try to try to be a part of that and listen to the various markets and be able to modify our products accordingly. And, uh, yeah, it's been quite an adventure, that's for sure. So how much of that travel, Joe, I'm, I'm really curious about this, how much of that is for new projects or installations you're working on, you know, say a new mountain wants to come online or they just want to expand their system or upgrade their system? And how much of it is just kind of, you know, keeping in touch and and just kind of stopping into a place that in Colorado or something that you might not have done any work on actively for a while, but you just want to maintain that relationship. What's that balance look like? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, you know, 10 to 15% of our time is spent on either new resorts or brand new snowmaking system at resorts that don't have equipment today. And probably, you know, 85 or 90% of the time would be touching base with customers. And we have, you know, many long-term relationships actually, you know, going 40 years or more and uh, just, you know, built these systems over time. And, um, you know, they're friends, you know, it's a lot of fun to go out and do product testing at the resorts together, particularly (laughs) not only in the machine made snow, but also when we get pow days. Um, (laughs) So uh, it's, it's not hard sometimes to drag some of the customers out to go look around at the mountain. So, you know, what does that footprint look like, Joe? And, and, and I realize that there's only so much you can tell us about specific numbers. But as I mentioned in the intro, you have more than a thousand customers and that's a number that's on your website. So as you look at the scope and scale of SMI, what does that look like if we were to do an inventory of SMI machines around the world? I mean, how many different places are we going to find these in? How, how much, how many new machines are you kicking out? Like, what can you tell us about the size and scale of this little Mid- Midland, Michigan based company? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're definitely a a global company. You know, if you look at ski resort quantities or the number of them globally, there's roughly 6,000 ski resorts worldwide, depending on how you count them. And, you know, less than 10% of those would be in the United States. So we need to be in most of the major mountain resort markets around the world to stay in touch and hopefully ahead of the market. You know, our clients are mainly mountain resorts, but we also have a lot of Nordic customers and some indoor resorts. Um, and we're also in some non-snowmaking businesses as well. Um, so, you know, yeah, we have subsidiary affiliate companies located in Sweden and France and Austria and China and Canada and a few other markets. I think I'm missing a couple, but maybe New Zealand and, and a few other places. So you mentioned that uh, that Pennsylvania facility earlier. So, so kind of break this down for us. So it seems as though your main offices and production is in Midland. Is that true? And then, and then what does the rest of your footprint look like as far as where you make things? Just kind of orient us to SMI, where you actually operate and make things, not the mountains, but where, where your facilities are. Yeah. So our, our main manufacturing assembly facility is, is here in Midland, Michigan. And our automation and controls group is in Southern Pennsylvania. 
um, where they do a lot of the software PLC programming and make the control panels for the equipment. Um, and then each of our affiliated uh, companies, uh, say China or Sweden, for example, they'll make some of the parts in those countries that may be big and heavy in the non-technology parts that are, you know, more expensive to ship. So then each of the subsidiary companies will, will also do some of the manufacturing and final assembly. So as a born and raised Midwest guy, I still have this Midwest pride. And, and I've still, even though I've lived in the region for a long time, I'm, I'm still very proud that SMI is in my home county where I grew up. Just fr- from your point of view, we've seen a lot of outsourcing over the past couple decades, I think especially since NAFTA and a lot of things have gone to other countries, lower cost countries. Why have you kept your facility in Midland and how proud are you are the fact of you are the fact that you have kept these jobs in, in, in Michigan? Yeah, you know, we have, we have a great community with a lot of specialty manufacturing partners locally based. Uh, it's a fairly low cost place to live and work. And, you know, we are located in a relatively small city, but we have access to big businesses with the chemical and auto industry being so prevalent in our area. We have many very long tenured skilled employees and this area is a great place to enjoy the Great Lakes and outdoor activities. And geographically for the ski industry in North America, you know, we're fairly centrally located for shipping. You know, with regards to, you know, being a USA based manufacturer, you know, we work really hard on quality and cost control. And again, we've developed these long term partnerships with key vendors to help us control our costs. We have a very you know, found a very smart and hardworking team in Michigan and Pennsylvania. And we also have a really skilled team of technical and salespeople around the world. And, um, you know, we have a lot of skilled tradespeople around in Michigan that do high quality and work very efficiently. Uh, we've just expanded both of our Michigan and Pennsylvania facilities substantially to be further ahead of the recent supply chain and freight challenges. So we continue to invest and we're very proud to be a USA manufacturer. So talk about those adjustments a little bit, Joe. I, I just hosted Darren Cole, the president of Leiner Poma of America on the podcast. And and he said something similar where there were a lot of parts that they were bringing in from China and they've resourced those all to the United States to help get ahead of some of those supply chain issues. So what were the sort of issues that you were running into? Like what were the sorts of parts that maybe were getting a little bit harder to to reliably obtain? And what sorts of adjustments have you made to, to make, to get ahead of those issues? Yeah. You know, even for a small niche manufacturing company located in Michigan, we were really surprised to see how globally spread the parts and subcomponents that go into some of our other parts that we'll buy from people are manufactured around the world. So, you know, we ran into supply chain problems with, you know, getting uh, chips and cards and, specialty valves that were made in, you know, Indonesia or Pakistan or China. And we didn't know that those were actually the supply points. Um, So we also had freight challenges, you know, container costs, you know, skyrocketed, went up 10x of what they were a couple years ago. So in adjusting to that, you know, we are trying to bring more sourcing back to, you know, North America. The facility investments we just made allow us to stock and store a lot more inventory in our facilities instead of more of a just-in-time manufacturing, which is what we were three or four years ago. Um, and we're just going to invest more heavily in inventory. So it's kind of a three- or four-pronged approach to, to change our st- strategy on manufacturing. 
And one of the things that surprised me as I was looking at these chairlift delays that we're seeing all over the continent was the key part that was missing on chairlifts for Jackson Hole and Alta was the haul rope. And I was like, are you kidding me? It's, it's, it's a steel rope. Like how, how hard can that be? And apparently they're still manufactured in Europe and they're shipped over here. And of course they had to go in on the West coast because of, of where they are. So they have to go all the way around. And, and I'm just like, we can't make a steel rope in North America. <laughs> like what, what is going on here? So are there any similar parts uh, with, with your supply chain for snow guns where there, there are parts that maybe haven't been made in North America, but probably could if you just had someone who committed themselves to doing it? Yeah, no, not really. I mean, a lot of the parts that go into our equipment are sourced in North America already. We do have some from Europe and Asia as well. Uh, but there's not that sort of single source manufacturing at one or two locations around the world that we have to deal with. Uh, so I guess in some ways we're fortunate to uh, to have a better understanding and maybe a, a more visible and available supply chain out there. So I mentioned earlier that you have this really interesting factory and, and, and it's kind of a curiosity where people drive by on the US 10 Expressway and they look over and there's a big pile of snow and all these snow guns and it's it's in this very flat place. Your website says that SMI has, quote, the only dedicated and integrated snow pay, snowmaking research and testing facility at a snowmaking production facility in the world. I'm assuming that you mean that Midland, Michigan factory. I did join you for a tour of that factory in the summer, and thank you very much for that. But that was really cool to see all your folks back there assembling these things and see them in various states of build. But but tell us more about this facility, why it's special, and what sort of advantage that that gives SMI in the marketplace. Yeah, we have a 10 million gallon pond here, a four or five acre field and 12 hydrant sets already established. And, and we built this, I think, in the early 80s. We have three different pumping setups. We have a large air compressor, full data analytics in a building right next door to our offices. So we spent a lot of time making snow and testing new mousetraps, if you will. You know, we're constantly working on both major and minor improvements to the products. And snowmaking improvements are really hard to verify in the many weather and input variable conditions that we have in snowmaking. You know, when you think about winter weather and the conditions going from 30 degrees Fahrenheit to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit and our equipment and runs in all of these. So it can take a while to validate, you know, our product improvements. So having a testing facility at our offices is really helpful and efficient. We can set up tests, you know, sort of once you set up snowmaking, it's a bit like watching the grass grow when things are going good. So we'll set up tests and carry on with other work while the equipment's making snow and oftentimes make it through the night and, you know, for multiple days at a time. So having access right that where we can go, you know, kind of multitask is, is really convenient for us. That's really interesting. And, and I guess I hadn't thought about that before because, you know, to, to cite another Michigan-based industry, which is the auto industry, we've seen these sort of crash facilities they have where they'll really test the car to death, right? They'll, they'll have all these machines that simulate snow and rain and, and mud and freezing and heat, and they'll just run the cars and run the cars and they'll crash the cars. It sounds like you kind of use that Midland facility in the same way where you just kind of test for all different sorts of scenarios. Yeah, that's really what we're trying to do, you know, and just because something works at, you know, 25 degrees Fahrenheit, it might not work that well at minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, as you know, these weather windows come and go. So we really pay attention to the weather and 
when we see a window where, say, for example, might get super cold, we'll uh, have all hands on deck and, you know, kind of be out there and set up and watch the equipment and try to do our testing in that short window uh, that may only be available for just a limited amount of time. Yeah, and for folks listening who aren't familiar with mid-Michigan weather patterns, it gets cold there. It can be 20 below for days at a time in the winter. Uh, it can get quite hot in the summer. So so you really, as far as as weather, you know, it's a very kind of stable place where you don't have to worry about a lot of natural disaster type things, but you do get those big weather swings. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. You know, we're definitely a four-season place to live in the world. So, so help us understand this, Joe, because it's – it's not entirely clear just because, you know, skiers are not always familiar with the branding on snow guns or it's not always obvious or, or they just don't really pay attention. So globally, what does the snowmaking industry look like? Like who are the big players and where are they? And how does SMI fit into that both in North America and from a global point of view? Yeah, we are say, you know, one of three or four major players around the world. We're the only USA-based significant manufacturer. Our big competitors are mainly Italian, and we have a considerable Canadian one. And we see, you know, many small local players in markets like Sweden and Japan that are primarily only working in that country. Uh, so there's some big players and some small players um, as you move around the world. And being the only major snowmaker that's located in the United States, do you have a sense of, of what kind of market share you actually have in the U.S.? Are, are you the, the largest maker of snow machines that are at U.S. ski areas or, or is that a pretty, pretty split market still? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it depends on how you define market and market share. And um, I just want to clarify that, you know, USA-based manufacturer, not necessarily USA-based snowmaking company. So it just depends on how you measure it. But I'd say we're the market leader in North America, and we're strong in many countries like Sweden, Norway, Japan, and China, for example. So what does what your balance look like as far as how concentrated you are in the U.S. compared to the rest of the world? Like, What can you tell us about, about what that looks like? Uh, you know, again, it's hard to kind of measure that, but... Um, you know, most of the resorts in North America would be our customers. You know, we don't have them all, but we have the majority of them. And a lot of them are repeat purchasers year in and year out or, you know, say over a three-year period. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, it's a little complicated, but I'd say we're the market leader in North America. All right. So let's take a step back here and let's talk about snowmaking. So pretend like you're explaining this to an eight-year-old or like you're explaining it to me, someone who basically doesn't really understand snowmaking, even though I spend almost all my time probably skiing at resorts that rely on man-made snow. So explain snowmaking to us in the simplest possible terms, how you turn water into snow using a machine. Yeah, sure. You know, snowmaking simulates snowfall through the use of water and compressed air, the main ingredients. So snow made at skiers is, is actual real snow composed, composed of frozen water droplets. Snowmaking involves using compressed air that cools as it exits the nozzle to create ice seeds. I don't know if you've ever worked with compressed air hand tools, but as the compressed air expands, it really cools. So we use that phenomena to help create these ice seeds that help freeze the main water that's sprayed from the water-only nozzles. So in general, we spray water, we nucleate it with ice seeds, and by nucleate it, we mean get it to organize in a six-sided array. And then we help the freezing process by projecting the frozen particles up into the air and onto the slopes. 
So we have about, you know, two to 15 seconds to freeze the water droplets versus mother nature taking hours or even days. And our machine made snow is more like weak old natural snow. And that is more shaped like a pellet or a grapple versus the dendritic arm natural snowflake. And if you watch snowmaking in, in process, resorts will generally make piles of snow and leave them in piles until they have enough snow to push out a trail, say, top to bottom. And some of the particles, when they first get introduced into the pile, may only be frozen like an eggshell. And it can take a few hours or, you know, many hours to fully freeze 100% through. So we like to let the piles of snow cure for a while as well. And another benefit of this pellet or grapple shape is that it can better withstand the freeze-thaw cycle um, that many resorts experience all the time. And you'll see that this machine-made snow can be more durable than natural snow. So sounds pretty simple. And, you know, from from a, a technology point of view, it's a simple enough machine that folks, a lot of people sort of claim to have invented snowmaking and, and it all happened around, you know, a similar time in, in, in you know, 40s, 50s, these, these sort of post-war decades where people were experimenting a lot with starting new scares. So obviously it's evolved a lot and the snow guns that you're making today are much more sophisticated than the Snowstream 320 which was your parents' first snow gun in 1974. So take us through this evolution here, Joe. What was the snow gun like that your parents were dealing with nearly 50 years ago now? And and how are the snow guns that SMI Snowmakers is making today different? How And how did you get there? Just take us through that evolution. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the core principles and physics of freezing and making snow have not really changed you know, we still need to take water and convert it into snow. But what has changed is the efficiencies of the equipment and the gear being just much easier to use and, and with much higher capacities. So, you know, like the, the Snowstream 320 of the old days, you know, it, it generally worked pretty well in the teens and low 20s. Um, you know, today's equipment would be four times better than 40-year-old gear, if you will. And, you know, it, it's much more energy efficient. And just a lot easier to use. So uh, the nucleation technologies come a long ways. Uh, the water spraying technology, the use of compressed air is more efficient now. Uh, the packaging and, and user friendliness of the equipment is much better. So, um, you know, that's kind of how it's evolved over time. So if you look at the amount of snow you can make with the same amount of energy, and I, I hosted Bromley general manager, Bill Carnes on the podcast recently. I'm not sure if they are an SMA customer or not, but he has been there since the early eighties. So he's been there over 40 years and most of his tenure has been defined by updating, advancing, modernizing that ski area snowmaking system. They have a particular problem at Bromley where they face South. So, you know, they have some real snow retention challenges. And he was talking about, and this is an exact, is not an exact quote, but he was talking about how he can make more snow with fewer guns in in less time than in like half the time than he could 30 years ago. So just talk about how much better the modern equipment is getting from an energy point of view and from a production point of view. Yeah. I mean, we, we kind of use the number of it's four times better in terms of snow production output using about a quarter of the energy of the old equipment. You know, in the 60s and 70s, a typical snow gun might use 50 to 150 horsepower of energy. 
whereas today's equipment uses more like 10 to 25 horsepower of energy. So, you know, in some ways it's, it's a fifth to a sixth the, the energy usage. It really depends on which temperatures you're making snow in. You know, a lot of people have moved to fixed position snowmaking as well, which has really helped the efficiencies where you don't have to set up and take down, you know, the mobile equipment and kind of go from trail to trail. There's still a lot of mobile equipment out there, but, uh, you know, a lot of the industries moved to fixed equipment on their key slopes. And how has the, as, as the guns have gotten more or efficient, how has the quality of the snow improved if it has? Oh, yeah. The, the ability to make quality snow is much better today than it was, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And most resorts really work hard to make only a dry snow. You know, everybody's trying to avoid the, the boilerplate, you know, the ice sheet, the, the things that, you know, happened 30 years ago. And the, the equipment today is much more user-friendly. It's, it's easier to train on. It's easier to operate. And it just makes better snow. You know, the nozzles and nucleation technologies just come a long way. So the, the machine-made snow quality is drastically improved. Talk a little bit about temperature, Joe. You mentioned earlier it was kind of high teens, low 20s to make snow 50 years ago. What, what does that temperature, the optimal temperature range look like today? Is it, is it still the same because temperature is temperature or, or is that really a reflection of how good the equipment is? Oh, yeah. We have, you know, a lot of customers, you know, whether it's Southern California, uh, you know, Southern Midwest, uh, New Zealand, you know, they make a lot of snow at 27, 28, 29 degrees Fahrenheit now. And, you know, the only way to do that 30, 40 years ago was to put a huge amount of energy through a snow gun and not a lot of water. So a lot of resorts spent a lot of time above, say, 25 making snow. Um, and that's really important for our equipment to operate really well there. But, you know, they also get conditions where it's really cold. So that same snow gun, when it's 15 degrees, will be able to throughput, say, five or six times the amount of water that it does at 28 degrees Fahrenheit. So you really need that full range of temperature ability with your equipment today. But, you know, if I could pick an ideal condition and you could ask skiers this, you know, I'd probably say it's 15 degrees Fahrenheit, 50% relative humidity with a stable light wind behind it, you know, and, and we just make a lot better snow across the board in all temperatures. We hear a lot about wet bulb temperature. What does that mean, Joe? It, it's an indicator that takes both temperature and humidity into, into uh, its role. And it's basically the lowest temperature water drop can reach before it starts freezing. So in general, wet bulbs, the indicator that we use to indicate what the snowmaking capability is. So you can actually make snow at 35 degrees Fahrenheit if there's 10% humidity. And alternatively, if it's 30 degrees Fahrenheit and 98% humidity, you can't make snow. So having good weather equipment and really paying attention to the weather is super important in snowmaking. What is the optimal wet bulb temperature? And as far as your equipment goes, is there anything it can do to kind of mitigate that? Or, or does, it, does it not really matter? You just have to, it, it, it really depends on that temperature to get the optimal output. Oh, yeah. Our, you know, our business is definitely dictated by Mother Nature. So uh, that's the one thing that we have to work with all the time. You know, but again, typically the colder, the drier, the better. But once you start getting below about five degrees Fahrenheit, uh, things can freeze up pretty quickly. So you really have to pay attention when you're below zero Fahrenheit and you're making snow. That's some of the toughest conditions you can have. What is the coldest temperature that you can make snow at? 
Oh, well, you can, you know, make snow down to minus 30 or so. We have customers mm-hmm. that do that sometimes. Wow. Uh, you know, it's super hard, but uh, the equipment's certainly capable of doing that. Is it, when you get to those temperatures, is it the guns or, or is it really the pipes that become a problem when, when you when you have to find a way to keep that water from freezing? Yeah, I mean, it's really all aspects of the water system, you know, whether it's the pipes, the hoses, the guns themselves. When one little thing goes wrong, boy, it can freeze up pretty quickly. And, and when it's that cold, it makes a mess in a hurry. So you really have to pay attention. And, yeah, your equipment has to be well-maintained and well-operated. All right, Joe, let's talk about automation. You know, we, we, we hear this term more and more. A lot of the big resort players, you know, Boyne in particular, is moving toward fully automated systems. What does that mean, though? Because it's not just a guy flipping a switch and the whole system turns on. So so tell us what you mean by automation and kind of where you are, how sophisticated those products are now, and, and, and how this helps both from an efficiency standpoint and from a quality standpoint of the snow. Yeah, sure. I mean, automation, boy, it has a lot of different meanings to so many different people. You know, we're to the point now where, you know, from my laptop right now, I can start snowmaking systems in Sochi, Russia or China or, you know, some of our big customers. So they're fully automated. You know, you can use smartphones, um, you know, different communication techniques. But, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at automation. So we try to break it into four basic areas, starting of the equipment, adjusting of the equipment, varying snow quality of the equipment, and then stopping and draining. So basically, when the weather gets cold, you can really quickly start up, say, 50 to 100 machines, and then they'll auto-adjust as the weather conditions change or your water temperature changes or something else might change on the input variable. And then when it warms up, they'll shut down and they'll drain and they'll be ready to go again. Um, You also receive a lot of data from mountain operations to better understand and improve performance. So data analytics has become a big part of snowmaking now, too. So there's also a lot of details, you know, about automation with regards to hydrant controls, communications, pumps, air plants that we can get into in more detail in the future. But one of my favorite automation definitions came from Clyde Perfect, who was the founder of Perfect North Slopes outside of Cincinnati. He told me, Joe, I have an automatic system. When it gets cold, my team automatically gets off their butts and goes out and makes (laughs) snow. So... You know, all kinds of ways to look at it. It's a complex subject. You know, a lot of different people have a lot of different views on it. And we try to offer a, a full range of simple to complex automation and manual equipment. So if you look at, if you start looking at some of these ski areas with really massive snowmaking systems, and I'm thinking of like Sunday River or Killington or even in the West Sun Valley, where you literally have thousands and thousands of snow guns. You know, I think most skiers are familiar with this concept of kind of skiing the mountain and, and which aspects are sunny in the morning and, and how you want to follow the sun around the mountain. And with this automation, I was reading on the, the heavenly case study on your website, how each snow gun is kind of like its own little weather station. Just talk about how, how having these automated systems helps you tap into these micro microclimates on the mountain and kind of decide where you should make snow and when and and how you can sort of set up a plan for sort of because because most scariest can't turn on all their guns at once right because they just don't have the 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 water to be able to do that so so just talk about how that can help a ski area become more efficient as far as how they actually go about the process of making snow over a big mountain oh yeah you know we're super dependent on the weather and you really got to pay close attention to the weather 
And yeah, you're right. I mean, we've seen 15 degree temperature differences and only 400 feet, feet of vertical on one slope. So, you know, think inversions, bizarre weather conditions, you know, you're right, shaded versus sun, north versus south exposure. You know, all this kind of goes into your strategy. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly encouraging customers to, you know, hey, get a strategic plan in place, know the winds, know the temperatures, have two or three scenarios for this upcoming uh, weather window that's going to come up. And, and you're right, you know, these, these systems now span, you know, sometimes it's four or five miles to go from one end of the resort to the other. And having this good weather data and uh, a good team of operators that, that has a good plan is super important. So just talk a little bit about what an automated system versus a non-automated system looks like from a manpower standpoint. So you you might have a place like Sunday River, which has something on the, you know, maybe 2,000 guns or something. You know, how much does this really save? Because there's... I don't think we're at the point where you never need someone to go out and check that hose or check that pipe or check the, you know, w- what's coming out of the gun. So, so how much people power does this really save you? Yeah. I mean, automated doesn't mean unattended. You still have to have people out there kind of looking around and, you know, catching any problems that might happen, you know, particularly on the large systems. But, you know, we got customers ranging from very small, say five acres of terrain with 10 machines to, you know, like you mentioned, over a thousand acres and a thousand machines. So, you know, some may only have a hundred foot of vertical to cover. Others might have 4,000 foot of vertical. So it's, it's dependent on, you know, what the resort has for fixed guns, mobile fleet, you know, just a lot of variables. So, you know, even with automation, you still need knowledgeable snowmakers running the equipment, you know, energy efficiency is a big part of it, you know, making the snow, but we also have a lot of successful customers that run manual systems really efficiently. And, you know, we're trying to offer products that, that meet the full range of needs out there. Yeah. So let, let's get into that a little bit. So I recently hosted Nubs Knob General Manager Ben Dornbus on the podcast. And Ben's not one of these guys who's been doing this for 100 years and says, oh, this is the way we've always done this. We're going to do. He's a young guy. He's in his 30s. And I asked him, how, you know, what are your thoughts on moving toward automation? Because obviously Nubs Knob has this just incredible snowmaking system that blankets every inch of their hill. And I said, how, how in, interested are you in moving toward automation? He said, we're not. We, we, I really think that a snowmaker on the hill going gun to gun is going to produce the best product. And, and that's Ben's point of view. And, and, and Ben's a smart guy and Nubs Knob is a particular kind of place, you know, without necessarily reacting to that, how much, how much resistance do you see just in general among your customers of, you know what? Thanks for that pitch, Joe. We appreciate what you're doing, but honestly, we like doing it the way we're doing it. We're going to stick with this. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. You know, we, we still sell a lot of manual equipment, but the general trend is definitely towards automation. You know, Nubs has, you know, mainly a fixed position snow gun fleet, very long tenured employees that love to make snow, and they do a good job at it. It's been successful f- for them. So every market, every resort has a little bit different you know, philosophy and how they make snow and they're located in different parts of the world based on staffing and terrain and other factors. And there really are a lot of ways to make snow, which is why we offer both manual and automated products. And we like to let our customers decide what's best for their resort and their situation. And we also have a lot of customers that, you know, have automated pump stations and manual guns, or they might have a certain amount of manual equipment and a certain amount of automated equipment. And they kind of do what's best for each slope 
and uh, each part of the resort. So it really varies and uh, have a lot of respect for customers. And we let them choose the menu of options that we offer to make the snow they want. So we're not at a point yet. You know, we, we've seen, so this is a, this is a trend that uh, personally annoys me in the car market is you will have a kind of a new feature, right? Let, let's say automatic transmission. And you know, it's, it's something that a car company comes out with that is an option. And then all of a sudden it becomes more and more of a part of the product line. And then they take away the option. Like it's really, really hard to find a manual transmission car in America. Now you go to other parts of the world and it's kind of hard to find an automatic, but it's the opposite way in America. And it always annoys me a little bit because a, it pushes the cost up and B, I just kind of like the manual transmission. And the, the, the assumption just sort of seems to be everybody wants this. It sounds like what you're saying is that at no time soon is SMI going to stop offering non-automated or this manual or kind of older style equipment. You intend to continue to design, manufacture, sell the more basic products for the customers that want that. Is that fair? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll continue to offer what people want to buy. So, you know, another piece of the automation puzzle I hadn't really thought of, but it's all over your website. So it got me thinking was um, just from a safety point of view. And I think, you know, we can we can all agree that Nubs Knob is not the same as, you know, to use an example you alluded to earlier, working in the high alpine at Black Home, right? So, so just talk a little bit about this safety aspect of it and why some of your customers in these high alpine environments may want to install automated systems as a safety measure. Yeah, I mean, safety is a part of it. You know, labor savings, efficiency improvements, you know, generally snow quality. You know, we think about remote areas of the mountain that that might be better automated, some of the steep slopes that might be better automated. Uh, but again, it depends on your label, labor pool, you know, your resort size and scope and your system capacities and coverage areas. At the end of the day, the majority of our customers are repeat customers. So we want to create solutions that cater to the way they operate best and help them to have a safe and successful snowmaking operation. We like to think of ourselves as a partner. And, um, yeah, I mean, your, your analogy is a good one. And, you know, safety is certainly a big part of, of mountain operations. All right. So looking into the future, Joe, what, what's the, what are you working on? Like, what is the future of of automation. Are there pieces of this you haven't been able to automate that you hope to someday? I mean, I don't know if we'll ever in our lifetimes get to the point where you have individual in a control room just managing this whole system like a nuclear power plant. But I think that, you know, you, you, you must have a sense of how this thing can get better. So what can you tell us about the future of automation and where you're hoping to get to? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a good question, and we think deeply about that with our team here and uh, at our annual sales meeting with our global team. You know, we invest heavily into R&D and our equipment and software each year. We typically find small sort of yearly improvements that over a five- or six-year period might add up to a decent improvement, but not so much breakthroughs on revolutionary, revolutionary products recently. So we've thought about, you know, drones and Bluetooth and, you know, different technology pieces and kind of experimented with it. And we're always on the quest to create a better product. But, um, you know, we'll continue to work hard to, to continue to evolve our products. And, um, you know, who knows, maybe there is a revolution coming. So you, you mentioned software just now, and, and that's an interesting piece of this. So as you automate and you reduce your reliance on humans, 
which are pretty reliable beings, you, you do lean more on the software, which can be reliable and, and cannot be. So just talk a little bit about the challenges that automation creates as far as, you know, these, all these systems suddenly have to talk to each other and, and how you get them to do that. And what do you do if the networks go down and, uh, you know, what if that software fails or, or what if it gets hacked? So, so what are the issues that automation brings up and, and how do you work to mitigate these? Oh, yeah. I think, you know, you and all your listeners and myself included, we've all had computer problems and phone problems and network problems, and they're real. Um, you know, today's equipment's certainly more reliable. And, you know, automation and, you know, these computerization certainly involves a more technical person. You know, in our business, they got to understand PLCs, computers, communication networks, you know, the electrical and controls that go into our equipment. So we typically request resorts have internet connections so we can jump in remotely and support um, the resorts with problem resolution. And, you know, also note that our products and software have to be multilingual, um, but we're used to this kind of support. And we spend a lot of time and resources training people to help make our products as user serviceable as possible. So we've spent a lot of time on documentation, training videos, and those kind of things to, uh, you know, have people, solve their own problems because 20, 24 seven snowmaking's happen in this time of year. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of different customers, a lot of different needs, and I rattled off your list of products in the intro, but kind of help us define this universe a little bit more. Cause I think for a lot of us, myself included, a snow gun's a snow gun. That's obviously not the case, right? So you have smart snow V2 axis. These are names of your product lines, Grizzly, Freedom X, Puma, Polecat, Wizard, Latitude 90, um, which is a really interesting one. That's your uh, warm weather snowmaker, all weather snowmaker. So just kind of break down this product suite for us and and what these different categories mean. Yeah, sure. I mean, we definitely have a complicated product line now because there's just a lot of different ways to make snow, as we talked about earlier. So we offer a full range of, you know, pretty much any snowmaking product that a resort would, would need or want to purchase. In real simple terms, we offer three versions of ducted fan snowmakers using various nucleators and spray nozzles, you know, pushed by a, a multiple of size ducted fans that projects the snow out onto the slope. We also offer four versions of the stick guns that are typically located on long booms on the edge of the slopes, but those could also be on short portable ground mounts as well. Um, our smart snow software platform is now in its 20th year. And we're working hard on a version 7.0, actually, um, for our software. Then the Latitude 90 is an all-weather snowmaker that can make snow in, in any condition. And it has a the product that, that we use or we're offering has a, a variable patented speed crusher and grinder. So you can kind of change the snow particle that's created by this all-weather snowmaker that can work in any temperature. Gosh, it's, it's, uh, it's such an interesting universe. Do you have a... A signature product like is there is there one that dominates the product line to again to use the analogy of the auto industry you know we all know the f-150 is sort of ford's workhorse right they sell more of those than than anything else so so it, do you have a product like that that's sort of like your main thing that the resorts are looking for in bulk oh yeah you know great analogy we tell people all the time that you know we're kind of the ford f-150 of the snowmaking world and that our products you know super rugged super reliable you know, our Super Polecat, Super Puma fans, and the Grizzly Stick are our most popular products. Um, and then Smart Snow is also very popular. Do you have one that – are any of these product lines kind of fading out and you and you just have them 
as a as a means of servicing sort of a very niche market, or or are these all sort of have their various uses that you suspect will go on for a long time to come? Yeah, you know, we pretty much sell quite a bit of all of the products that, that you've discussed and that are on our website. So, you know, again, our it's harder as a manufacturer to offer this wide variety of products because you have to stock and, you know, build and support so many different products. But we feel that's what separates us from our competition is this full range of products that we offer. And we don't just sort of change covers and and call it a new machine. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about that Latitude 90. This is really interesting to me this all-weather snow gun. Just tell us more about this, Joe. What is the temperature range that this thing can actually operate in, and and how does it work? Yeah, it can operate, you know, in any weather condition, you know, say from 20 degrees Fahrenheit to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. It uses refrigeration and ice-making technology, and basically what it does is it sprays water on a rotating drum, and then a cutter spins along this drum and drops ice chips onto a belt below it, and it's moved down to a crusher grinder uh, that, again, has variable speeds, so you can kind of change the particle size, and then it gets blown out onto a slope. To what extent are these kind of novelty machines at this point? To what extent are you seeing ski areas, say, in the southeast or the mid-Atlantic or maybe some other warmer weather regions of the world that have that have skiing actually use these as an important part of their snowmaking fleet? Yeah, I mean, it's this technology has only been around for, say, less than 10 years, so it's still kind of gaining some traction. But, you know, it's definitely a, a really cool product, and it really does work well in all temperatures. Um, but its capacity is, is a bit limited in terms of a snowmaking machine, in terms of how much snow it can actually make. So we don't see it replacing traditional snowmaking. But on smaller scales, it can be a really effective, reliable tool, um, and a nice product to potentially offer customers that that have these these wild temperatures. And how are you seeing it used so far? I mean, is it sort of hey, let's make a tubing lane in the backyard for my kid's June birthday party, or or, or are you seeing ski areas actually deploy these for maybe the base of their area for these November December periods when it might be colder up the mountain, but they might need a little bit different gun for lower. Yeah, I mean, I'd say the the majority of the products are going into tubing and snow play areas, but it's just starting to gain some traction on the teaching areas and the lower base areas. So if I'm a customer and I come to you today and and want a new install, you know what we we you know we I talk about chairlifts a lot more than snowmaking, and the life cycle of a chairlift seems to be around thirty to forty years, sometimes fifty to sixty, depending on you know how how much resources the ski area has. What about snow guns? What's the kind of life cycle and life expectancy? And what's the oldest equipment that you still see being used out there? Yeah, you know, Stuart, we make a really robust and solid product. Sometimes <laughs> I think it's almost too solid. Uh, we tell resorts, you know, kind of plan on a 25-year life, but uh, we have a lot of products still running strong after 40 years. Oh, wow. And uh, it's like a car. If you, if you take good care of it and do maintenance on it, it should last quite a while. I mean, I have to imagine, though, that when you go to some of these places and you see them running this 40-year-old snow gun, don't you have to say, uh, I mean, look, dude, it's like having a 40-year-old refrigerator, right? I mean, yeah, it's paid for, but it's going to use 10 times more energy. Like, don't you want to say, like, look, you can make way more snow and use way less energy if you get four of the new machines compared to this one old machine? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a fair comment. But, you know, a lot of these older, like, Snowstream 320 types will go on, say, third-tier trails with fixed position that they can maybe wait till it gets a little colder. And that's where we're still seeing a lot of those deployed primarily in the Midwest. Um, and it does still make decent snow uh, when it gets colder. So, uh, yeah, we're trying to, you know, kind of push the, the new equipment. Um, but a lot of people are slow to change, and, and it takes time to fund these uh, missions of snowmaking improvements. So no machine is going to last 40 years without some maintenance. So I imagine your approach, and I imagine the reason your company has been successful so long, is you don't just drop these machines off at the curb and say, have a nice life. Talk a little bit about how you work with the resorts to maintain these machines after they've been installed. Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, these incredibly long-term strong relationships with our customers, you know, spend a lot of time training, spend a lot of time helping with maintenance. Uh, We stock, you know, millions and millions of dollars of spare parts. A lot of our customers will stock spare parts. Uh, We have a dedicated team located around the world that works super hard doing training, service, and support. Um, They live and travel, you know, in these great mountain resort communities. So, um, you know, it's, it's been, uh, been fun to have a staff that, that loves to be outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious about that, you know, those, those technicians and how that operates. You know, my dad worked to, he's retired now, but worked to fix medical machines. And, and it was a similar sort of thing where, you know, it's this very big complex machine and, and they had them all over the world. And then they had, he was, you know, a regional service person who would go and he would, he would fix them, but sometimes he could talk the local techs through it on the phone. So, so as you look at your technicians and, and how they work with the local crews, how much of a knowledge transfer really is possible and how reliant are they on these SMI specialists to, to come in and fix the machines hands on? And like, what does that network look like? Because you have so many partners around the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, certainly today's technology has helped with that. You know, sometimes we'll, the the snowmaker at the resort will, will get on a cell phone and they'll have a video call and kind of work through things that way. Uh, we have a great documentation on our website as long with, along with printed. Uh, we have really good training videos. Uh, we spend a lot of time training our technicians on, on the newer products and the newer versions. But it's also important that they know the older products because there is a lot of gear out there that, you know, as you mentioned, might be 10, 15, 20 years old. And there's been some some subtle changes to the products. So we spent a lot of time on that, a lot of effort on it, uh, a lot of resources on it. Um, but we think we do pretty well. And, um, you know, basically, we, we wish we had more people this time of year because, you know, a lot of people are making snow around the world. But it's a, it's a constant balance for us. All right. So let's talk about your process. And, and I think kind of one of the most exciting things probably for you and at least me when I think about this business is a customer comes to you and they don't have snowmaking at all, right? So you're not dealing with 50-year-old pipe or undersized things or or anything else. What you have is is a, a kind of blank piece of land and you can and you can create your own system. So take us through the process. New customer approaches you, they have no snowmaking. How do you take them from that primitive state? Granted, it's let's take an established scary here. So the, the lifts are all in place, the lodges, the the infrastructure is there but they want a snowmaking system. What are the steps? How do you take them to to that sort of end state? And how long does that take? 
Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, generally I spend about half my time working with resorts on snowmaking master planning, whether that's a, a new resort or an expanded system that uh, is just going to get bigger and better. And, you know, so we spend a lot of time on water planning, you know, water is the key ingredient for snow. So working with resorts to organize and intelligently move water up and around the resorts. We also spend a lot of time on snow guns and what type and where and why and what kind of mount. We also look at weather conditions, power loads, different automation levels. So there's quite a bit to the planning. In terms of the steps that we go through and how long does it take, you know, we generally start with, hey, which slopes do you want to cover with snow? And we define acreages and snow depths. And then this determines how much water we need. So basically, one unit of water will make two units of snow as a general rule of thumb. And then we'll take a look at the weather and we'll pick a temperature and an average relative humidity uh, for which we'll design the system. And then finally, we determine how much time do you want to take to make the snow. So those are the four variables that generally define the snowmaking capacity. And, you know, we work closely with the resorts and mountain planners which slopes to cover, how to prioritize them for opening and resurfacing strategies. And then, we, of course, we use our experience to help drive the process. So what else is involved here? Because when, you know, SMI makes snow guns, but there's a lot of other components here, right? You need you need pipes and compressors. And so, so help us understand that, like the whole machine. What does that look like and how do you help them to design that? And, and really, where does all that other stuff come from? Well, you know, if you look at a snowmaking system, it's really like a golf course irrigation system on a mountain. It involves, you know, kind of gathering water and putting it up on the slopes. Only snowmaking involves really expensive sprinkler heads. And uh, we are in freezing conditions, so we have to be careful about freeze-ups. Um, but, you know, with, with regards to the planning process, it does involve a lot of stakeholders with regards to the planning and permitting process. You know, the local communities, local authorities play important roles in this planning process. And everybody wants to be good neighbors and good stewards of the environment. So we've tried to be very respectful of these relationships and just kind of lead resorts through the process. How much time do you spend, Joe? I'm, I'm curious because a lot of times when you're dealing with an old system, um, you, you have ponds in really weird places, right? But how much time do you spend and how important is this notion of water recapture? And, and we look at water becoming particularly problematic in the Western United States. I imagine there's other regions in the world where this is a big issue. And, and, and what we've seen is a lot of ponds sort of built at the bottom of ski area so that that water flows right back down to it. And I, and I realize that is, it, you know, creates its own problems because you have to pump the water back up. But, but how much time do you think about water recapture and, and, and sort of being able to make this a renewable resource? Yeah, I mean, you know, basically the, the water that we use, we return 85% of it back into the watershed. So we're just kind of, you know, using it and then and then returning it back in. So a good design, uh, you know, can be one that if the topography and the, the, the resort configuration allows the, the meltwater to come back down and, and put it back up there, yeah, that can be a really good design. And, um, you know, again, to go back to a perfect north slopes, they basically – when they do get a freeze thaw cycle, it does fill up their pond. And then they, when it gets cold, they turn it back into snow. So, uh, you know, having the ability to, to use that water intelligently is, is a big part of what we do. Well, let's, let's expand on that a little bit because there's, there's a sort of mainstream media narrative and I'm not one of these, like, you know, blame everything on the media guys. Obviously I'm part of the media 
I went to journalism school. I, I respect the process. But I think that there is a, a vastly oversimplified narrative that came out of the Beijing Olympics, which happened to be in a place that gets almost no snow. And, you know, there's a lot of political reasons uh, behind that that we won't get into here. But it, it, it drew a lot of attention to the amount of man-made snow that the modern ski industry relies on. And it, from my point of view, it was a very reductive, simplistic argument where it was only looking at the resource output needed and not looking at what the system put back in and sort of how it, or, or the economic sort of component of, but I, I don't, I don't want to make your argument for you. So, so here, here, here's the criticism is man-made snow uses a ton of energy. It draws a ton of water. What is your response to that? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good question. And we, we did, um, have some issues around the Beijing Olympics and, you know, the water and power usage there. And we took a lot of calls, um, to, to talk about that. And, you know, we can tell our story better and we're going to start telling our story a little better. Snowmaking is a longstanding operational tool that, you know, improves and stabilizes resorts and the mountain communities that they're in. It allows skiers to have a consistent opening, improve snow surfaces and allows them to stay open longer. We bring jobs and revenue to communities. You know, as I mentioned earlier, we're, we're mainly non-consumptive and that over 85% of the water used returns to the watershed. So resorts are, you know, very good stewards of the mountains. And, you know, we are fortunate to, to live and work and play in, in these in these mountain communities. So we're very respectful of the water. And, you know, we were if you look at water withdrawals on rivers or streams, you know, they're very closely monitored and controlled. And we make sure there's minimum stream flow volumes to protect the fish, the wildlife, the plants and other species and creatures that rely on these water sources. And we have the same sensitivity and controls, whether they're lakes or groundwater. And then, you know, with regards to energy, most resorts have heavily invested into new snowmaking guns and automation that have reduced the energy requirements to make snow. Um, so, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the snow guns of today use about four times less energy than the older models. So we've worked really hard on sustainability and energy efficiency as an industry. So if you look at SMI and, you know, obviously the resorts can only use as good of a product as you offer, right? So how focused are you and your team on making better snow guns that are more efficient, that use less energy and make more snow with less water? Yeah, I mean, from day one, our company's been all about energy efficient snowmaking, you know, and our teams continue to work hard and creatively to develop, you know, product changes and enhancement that make snowmaking easier and more cost effective for our customers. And then with regards to using less water, today's equipment is better at the water to snow conversion with regards to generally making a drier and better quality snow. But water remains the key ingredient in making snow. And, um, you know, we work hard on trying to more creatively take that water and turn it into snow. You know, something I've seen only in a limited way, Joe, and, and I may not have the full perspective. You probably have a lot more insight into this than I do. So we have two ski areas out here in Massachusetts. Berkshire East and Jiminy Peak that have mountaintop wind turbines and Berkshire East, that turbine actually generates all of the electricity they need to run their resort. And I've actually been more surprised that more ski areas haven't done this because what it essentially does is take them off the grid and, and really 
eliminates a huge bill for them. And obviously, you know, those, those turbines need maintenance themselves. But as you think about those examples, and I'm sure you're familiar with those ski areas, what other sort of creative sort of green energy or, or, or sustainable energy solutions have you seen around the world? And have you tried to incorporate any of this into your guns? Is it possible, for example, to have like a solar mount on some of these guns to supplement energy off the grid? Uh, yeah, I mean, those, those wind turbines out east are certainly very effective. And I think you'll, you know, continue to see those deployed in our industry. Um, you know, there are other resorts that I've seen around the world where, you know, the, the river that comes down the hill might be used to generate power after the snowmaking uh, intake position, for example. So they're generating a lot of hydropower uh, for that resort as well. Um, we're also starting to see, you know, some use of solar and battery in snowmaking. Um, you know, I think that technology has a ways to go. But in general, you know, we see some future opportunities uh, with regards to solar and battery and snowmaking. So let's put all this together here. So a recent snowmaking system that you installed was at Arizona Snowball, which is owned by Mountain Capital Partners, which has been investing just a ton of energy or a, a, a ton of money into their resorts. And that's sort of their specialty. They buy these kind of decrepit properties and they they modernize and fix them up. They just bought Wilmot Pass in Oregon, and I'm sure they'll do the same thing there. So look at Arizona Snowball. It had no snowmaking. It has a lot of cultural sensitivities, um, which some of the local Native American tribes uh, have been resistant to to big changes on the mountain it has an extremely challenging water environment and you had some big challenges to get water there both from a technical point of view and a build point of view and and this was just a massive investment so talk about arizona snowball and and i believe you can talk about this one because this case study is right there on your website and just the 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 what the challenge was and how you went about solving it yeah, I mean, that was a really challenging project, and it required a lot of cooperation and teamwork. You know, Arizona Snowball had huge swings in their snowfall amounts, you know, and the timing of it, and they could go from a terrible year and a low snow year to a great year and high snowfall years. So it was tough to run that business consistently and reliably when you think about the number of people that they employ and, and its impact on the, the local community. You know, the resort's a major winter employer, and, you know, the, the town's much slower in the winter. You know, they're one of the gateways to the Grand Canyon. So this resort, you know, is located, as you mentioned, outside of Flagstaff on Forest Service land, and there was really very limited water up on the mountain. So it took us over three years to kind of create and develop a, a plan that was feasible from a technical permitting and financial perspective. We worked very closely with J.R. Murray, who's still uh, very involved in the planning at Arizona Snow Bowl. And he's a very clever and, and creative guy. He's also a lot of fun. There is a collaborative effort between the resort, you know, the city of Flagstaff, the Forest Service, and the community. And the city of Flagstaff had excess water available in the fall and winter. So we were able to secure a deal to, to purchase some of that water. And then detailed engineering was required because we had to run the water more than 15 miles through the town and then up an access road over 3,000 foot of vertical. So we used two high pressure pumping stations. And then this water supply wasn't really enough to create a proper snowmaking system. So we also found a great location and they built a $10 million 
million gallon pond. And this water also helps with firefighting in the summers. And this lake and the water supply really anchor the snowmaking system. And then from there, the resort, you know, added the appropriate piping and power distribution systems. And it's been hugely successful in providing a, you know, very consistent, reliable opening along with great snow conditions. And they've actually expanded that system over the past few years as well. And, you know, I think it's been a very successful addition to the resort and really stabilized their business. It's an amazing project. And you said something interesting in there that I'd like to expand on a little bit as far as, as firefighting. I mean, as, as wildfires have become more of an intensive issue every single summer in the Western United States, how much are you planning with this in mind? I, I have a couple, couple examples. So I interviewed David Norton, the um, CEO of Taos on this podcast, and he, he said when they designed their snowmaking system, they had that in mind because Taos is at the end of this valley. And he said, if, if the fire comes, can have to come up the valley, right? So we kind of, we, we kind of have this like trap where we can fend it off. And then he was almost talking about it as though he was describing kind of a medieval walled city, right? And then if you look at Sierra <laughs> Tahoe out there in South Tahoe, they actually did, had to miss pretty much all of last season. Because they, they had a significant, significant fire damage from the Caldor fire. Uh, but because they had some snowmaking, which not necessarily all Tahoe resorts do, they were able to mitigate that damage somewhat. So how much of a factor is this when you, when you talk to scarriers in the West and you design their systems? How much are you thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely become a bigger factor. You know, the, the snowmaking lakes and facilities are definitely capable of helping with firefighting. And, um, you know, whether that's a forest fire, it might be a building fire. For insurance rates or other reasons, the snowmaking systems can be used to, you know, help with fire protection around the resort as well. So, so yeah, it's become a, a definitely a more popular topic and something that, that we're trying to think more deeply about as we look at uh, the snowmaking system expansions. All right, so back real quick to the story and how the skiing industry tells its story to the media. And you, you mentioned this earlier, and I think that was a good way of framing it. You know, it... The truth is that ski areas tend to be located in rural places where there aren't a lot of jobs and they are a significant employer, sometimes the largest employer. So th these are really important businesses, right? In any industrialized economy, you need energy. You just do. And so it, it, it's, you know, it's sort of a, you know, I can say this, you probably don't want to, but it's a, it's a stupid narrative. And, and it's, it's one that the ski industry needs to, I think, aggressively push back against. So how does the ski industry do this? Cause, because this is not just you, right? Because you, you don't really have that big of a megaphone, right? Because SMI is sort of a, you know, your, your brand is known in, in the ski industry, but it's not really a consumer brand, right? Whereas like Jackson Hole or Vail Resorts or, Altera Mountain, they have a big megaphone and they can use it and they need to do a better job of saying, look, this is what skiing does. This is, this is why it's important. This is why we need to make snow. This is how we, you know, mitigate that damage and, and, and minimize it and, um, and, you know, return water and, and do all these things. So, so how does, you know, how can, how can the industry do a better job telling its story? Well, Stuart, you know, we have a great industry association that's called our National Skiers Association, or NSA, I'm sure as you've heard it called. And Kelly Pollock is doing a great job running this group. And there are literally hundreds of volunteers from ski resorts working on the board and on committees to, to really help improve our industry and, and be our industry voice. 
And we've recently developed some information on climate smart snowmaking. And uh, we're going to start sharing that um, with the press and the media and, and the communities at large. And, you know, our company in small ways does small interviews with the global press on trying to educate the public about snowmaking and all the hard and smart work being done in our resorts. And they really are great stewards of their communities and of the environment. So, yeah, we'll keep telling our story. And I think it's an important one to tell. And I think you framed it in a good way. All right. So as I mentioned, this controversy sort of bubbled up due to the Beijing Olympics. As I mentioned in the intro, SMI has been involved in eight different Winter Olympic Games. Just talk about that heritage, Joe, how proud you are of that and and sort of any big projects from the Olympics that stand out to you or that you're particularly proud of. Yeah, I mean, we're incredibly proud of our, you know, involvement with many of the Olympics over the years, you know, <laughs> contributing to the success of the Olympics and being part of some major resort improvements at places like Whistler, Deer Valley, Rosa Hooter for the Sochi Games in 2014 and Nagano, Japan have all been incredible projects. And to be able to attend the games, you know, is super fun. I would encourage all of your listeners to go to an Olympics and be a part of this great experience. You know, in particular, I would have to say the the Rosa Hooter venue in Russia was really an incredible project. You know, it was a resort that was basically a clean sheet of paper. And the first time I, I visited it, it was wilderness. And, you know, I still vividly remember getting off the airplane at a military base in southern Russia and seeing palm trees and asking <laughs> our host, hey, how far away is this resort from the airport here? And his answer was only 30 miles away. Oh, my God. I thought to myself, holy cow, this is going to be one big snowmaking system and super <laughs> super important. So it also involved, you know, over 4,000 feet of vertical to cover the Alpine venue, uh -huh. along with getting water to a top restaurant. And now I remember at the time there was only like goat roads, horse roads around the mountain, you know, no slopes, no base area, no good roads. Um, but we were able to secure a, an old Russian dual rotor Kamov helicopter. Okay. And, uh, you know, with multilingual pilots, fortunately, and we got up and had a look around and we found a beautiful, untapped, clear mountain stream flowing right by the competition venues and designed a couple of lar large lakes and large pumping systems. And the weather there was super marginal. So we had to design a really tight snow gun density, particularly in the lower mountain, and did a fully automated system. And uh, the pre-test events were really smooth and the Olympics went great. And now this resort is super successful in both the winter and the summer. I mean, what is the base elevation there? I think it's around uh, 800 meters, so say, you know, 3,000 feet or so. I mean, that is not high. <laughs> no, particularly when you get south and you're by a, a big body of water like the Black Sea. I mean, what did your snowmaking window even look like there? I, I mean, I remember vaguely some talks of snow troubles at Sochi, but, but that, I, I mean, that is, that is crazy. Yeah, we had to design a really significant snowmaking system top to bottom. But the, the lower third in particular had snow gun densities that were two or three times tighter than the upper mountain. You know, they were a typical mountain resort, whereas at, you know, 7,000 feet or 7,500 feet at the top, they get more snow than the 3,000 feet at the bottom. Wow. Are you working on the next Winter Olympics? Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, um, it seems like we're always working on some Winter Olympic venue in the future. Um, so yes, we do have some projects going on for future facilities. 
All right, great. So let's uh, let's shift here, Joe, and and I have a few things to wrap up on. I want to get to another kind of popular media media narrative that I think is vastly oversimplified. There, there's this notion that with climate change, skiing will be an obvious victim, and I'm not here to debate climate change. But what I what I do think is that regardless of what happens, skiing has positioned itself to be very, very, very resilient. And I think that that is owed pretty much entirely to snowmaking. And the the example I always use here is the Poconos, which is only about two hours from where I am here in New York City. And this is, and I don't think folks realize how marginal this terrain is. What the Poconos has is hills and really good pitch for skiing. What it doesn't have is a lot of natural snow. I mean, there's, there's winters when they get four, six inches of snow the entire year. The weather is just terrible. It swings hugely. They do have some elevation there, but you know they get a lot of rain all year round, even in the winter. And they do get those overnight windows in the in the twenties and teens, and it can be very cold there. But it can also be in the forties for large parts of the winter. So you know, if you look at these ski areas, they consistently post one hundred day seasons, which I think is kind of the benchmark of a successful ski area. And you, and you have you know pretty. Good established ski areas there, Jack Frost, Big Boulder, Camelback, Blue Mountain, Shawnee, Elk, Montage, and seven new chairlifts went in in that region this summer. And I say this because two of them were six packs at Camelback and Blue. And you don't make those kind of investments unless you have a successful business, right? So you're talking about millions and millions, probably tens of millions of dollars invested. So this is a region that's working. And as the climate changes, more regions may become like the Poconos, but they've sort of set a template where you know what, we can make this work. So looking at the example of the Poconos, or you can pull another region because you you have a lot more granular familiarity with the global landscape than I do. You know, what does that tell us about how skiing can be resilient in a changing climate? Oh, yeah. You know, we all believe strongly in the future of our industry. And, you know, as do these resort owners and, you know, thousands of other resorts around the world. But uh, yeah, that's a tough area for sure that um, you, you talk about. And, you know, these resorts, they're, they're in challenging climates and they've invested heavily into robust and efficient snowmaking systems. And they generally invest every year into improvements. You know, our goal as an industry supplier is to continue to provide these resorts with engineering and equipment and services so they can be successful. And, you know, I'm a believer in our future. You know, I think the future of skiing looks really good. And we have a lot of smart and competent and talented people that work in this industry. So on the other end of the spectrum from these Pennsylvania skiers, which all have 100% snowmaking as they need to have to survive. Uh, and it's funny because you look and, and usually these are some of the first skiers in the East that are 100% open uh, just because they have such amazing snowmaking systems. Uh, there, there are still on the opposite end of the spectrum, several dozen kind of what I would classify as mid-sized U.S. skiers. I'm not aware of any big ones. Maybe Powder Mountain in Utah is the biggest but they don't have snowmaking. And that would be like Mount Bohemia, Michigan, Lookout Pass, Idaho, Beaver Mountain, Utah, Ski Cooper in Monarch, Colorado. Sort of really blessed ski areas that have just gotten natural snow for centuries. Probably will continue to just because of the, the particular climates they're in. But do you think long term, without any calling out any of these by name, Joe, do, do you think that every North American ski area will eventually need some kind of snowmaking or are there some that really can do without and and it just works for them because of their particular microclimate? Boy, that's a good question, you know, and, and uh, I think we recognize these resorts, you know, are very successful with their businesses, you know, that you mentioned, 
Uh, it's really up to them to evaluate the costs and benefits of snowmaking. And we know, you know, some of those names that you've mentioned have investigated, you know, kind of a way forward with snowmaking. It just hasn't made sense for them yet. So I think, you know, some of them are sort of thinking about it, pondering it, and and hoping to, uh, you know, stay with the business model they have. But they'd be ready to to make some changes if indeed they need to. So Lonnie Gleberman, the owner of Mount Bohemia in Michigan, joined me on the podcast recently. And he said, yeah, you know, we, we have those plans on a shelf. And, you know, if it ever comes to that, we'll do it. And right now we don't really feel the need for it. And his model is very much built on that $99 season pass and like keeping things very, very simple, right? So how deliberate are you about going to, say, a Mount Bohemia or, you know, a Powder Mountain and saying, hey, you know, you guys thinking about this? And how much do you just kind of lay out? You know, they'll find you if they need you. <laughs> That's funny. You know, we see each other at the trade shows, you know, and at industry events. And, and I often joke with them, you know, hey, sooner or later, you're going to call and, and you're going to you're going to need us. Um, <laughs> but I also, you know, wish them at the same time for their continued success. So so we kind of have some fun with it and uh, joke around about it. So it's uh, it, it's fun with the people in the industry are, are pretty cool people. So, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning is last question for you here today, Joe. And, you know, I, I saw. Brooke, your your marketing head out at New at a New York trade show and you know at last dinner in Midland and, and you guys are just sort of out there is my point. So you get out and you see snowmaking all over the world and, and I think most US skiers, most people listening to this, they know all the big places, you know, Summit County and the Wasatch and and Tahoe and you know Whistler and the Powder Highway and BC and and these are these are known and they'll know the Alps. But what are the places that are kind of up and coming? Like what's What's kind of the next big thing or or the areas that you think have a ton of potential because they have really great skiing, really great snow, really great mountains, really great culture, but maybe they just don't have the money yet to put in the big lifts and do the marketing and join the icon pass and and do all these things that would put them on the global roadmap. Like what are the places that kind of excite you as you travel around the world for being to having this huge potential? Well, maybe we haven't heard of yet. Yeah, I mean, boy, this business has taken, you know, our team to some really cool and interesting places around the world. So I guess it depends on, you know, what people are looking for. You know, we've had great ski days at places like Hokkaido, Japan, Sochi in Russia, northern Sweden, all across the Alps, and, and really all over North America. It's a big world out there. You know, we encourage people to continue on with their adventures you know, it's, we're super fortunate to work and play in this really cool and fun industry. So, you know, I don't really have any particular place in mind, but I'd encourage everybody to get out there and make some turns. What about Eastern Europe, Joe? This area uh, interests me because there's such a strong ski culture in Western Europe. And, and you look at a country like France, which is much smaller than the United States, but has more skier visits, which sort of underscores how built into the culture this is. It, you see kind of the big four, you know, you have Austria, Italy, Switzerland and France, but what about Eastern Europe and what's the potential there and, and, and how, how much of a ski industry is there? Oh, there's, there's quite a big ski industry and, in, you know, that kind of former Eastern block. And, uh, you know, there's some great resorts. There's some significant resorts there and, you know, it's a pretty good value at a lot of those countries still. And, um, they, they are working towards more modern snowmaking and more modern, um, you know, lift fleets, 
uh, and their groomings come a long ways as well. So, yeah, that Eastern Europe certainly an interesting part of the part of the globe, and and I think you'll you'll find some interesting adventures in that part of the world too. What about Ukraine? Do you have, do you have you done business in Ukraine? I'm, I'm curious about this because I know they have some quite large ski areas, and and obviously they're uh, in in quite a situation over there right now. But but is there good skiing there? And and have you been in touch with any partners you might have there just to kind of check in and, and see how they're doing? Yeah, we actually do have a have a partner company in in Ukraine, and um, you know, yeah, there's a there's a ski industry there that's that's been successful over the years, and yeah, it's certainly really unfortunate what's happening there, and um, you know, they're our friends, they're real people, and um, you know, we definitely try to help them in any way that we can, and um, we've actually had our our Poland colleague um, help some people in those regions to, uh, to get into a different environment. So, uh, we try to do things like that to help the communities we work in. Do you know if the ski areas there are operating this winter? Uh, I do not. I have not checked that recently. So sorry, I don't have an answer on that one. All right, Joe. Well, with that, I will give you your day back. I really appreciate the time, especially at this time of year. And especially with the schedule that you have to keep, I think the listeners will really enjoy this one. And, and people have been asking me for a snowmaking podcast for a long, long time. And I don't think that there's anyone else in the world who's probably better positioned to do it. So thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. And I wish you the best of luck with this coming season and beyond. Yeah, thanks, Stuart. I appreciate you being prepared. And these were great questions. And it was a lot of fun to, to talk about this great business that we're in. And I hope to make some turns with you this winter, dude. That would be yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, let's do it. Either, either when you come out east or, uh, or I'll be in Michigan, I'm sure. All right. Sounds great. Thanks. And you have a great day too. That's Joe Vanderkellen, president of SMI Snowmakers. Joe, thank you very much for that. That was so worth the wait. Just tremendous insight and a lot of optimism in there for the future of lift serve skiing. Thank you all very much for listening. I have a few more pods in the can still, and those should hit your inbox very soon. 2023 is just absolutely stacked on the Storm Skiing Podcast. I have the leaders of Mount Spokane, Whitefish, Palisades, Tahoe, Seven Springs, Eagle Crest, Holiday Valley, Pacific Group Resorts, Saddleback, Whitecap, Heavenly, Breckenridge, Deer Valley, Whistler, Banff, Some Peaks, and Stevens Pass, all booked on the podcast. Remember, the very fastest way to get those episodes is to subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts three days before everyone else. You can also follow the storm on Twitter and Instagram at Stormski Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.